0: Amen. Holy is the Lord indeed. Please be seated as we go to our holy, holy, holy God. Please bow with me. God, we pray just as that song declared, let this be to the day. Let this be the day that we sing the hymn of heaven. God, we desperately and we all wish and hope and long for that day. That day where we join with saints of all generations, with myriads upon myriads, with those who speak from every tribe, nation, and tongue, Lord, from every people group of all the earth. Lord, we long for that day where we sing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. We long for that day, God, where congregations don't break up. We long for that day where our eyes will be unhindered to look upon the author and perfecter of our faith. So God, while we wait, while we wait for that day and while we hope for that day, we pray that you would help us to be faithful. Help us to remain steadfast in the one who holds our faith. Help us to remain faithful to the one that we cry holy, holy, holy to. God, help us in the times of darkness, in the times of tears, in the times of struggle. Help us to remember that you sit on your throne and that you are in control of all things and you are sovereign over all things. And because of that, we can know, we can trust without a shadow of a doubt that you will come back one day to where we finally get to sing that anthem. Holy, holy, holy. Holy is our God. Behold him. God, we pray, not just for ourselves, but for many churches, that they would also cling to this hope, that they would cling to the faithfulness of our God so that they may be faithful. And this morning, Lord, in light of Pastor Josh Bonner being here with us, we want to pray for our brothers and sisters at Calvary Baptist Church. Father, we are so thankful that we get to co-labor in the work of the gospel here in this city with them. Father, we're thankful for the way that you were working in their congregation, that you were drawing people to salvation, that you were drawing people to further discipleship in Jesus Christ because of the ministry of that church. Father, we pray that for Josh and for the other leadership at Calvary Baptist that you would continue to flourish and to grow and to bear fruit in that congregation. Father, we pray for the brothers and sisters there today that they would hear the word of God preached clearly that Christ would be magnified in that, especially as Pastor Josh is away from them this morning. God, we pray for Josh and his wife. We pray that you would give them steadfastness and and endurance to do the good work of the ministry that is laid before them there at Calvary. And God, we pray that we would be an encouragement to them as well as we link arms to make Christ known here in the Black Hills. Father, we rejoice at Calvary Baptist Church, and we are so thankful for their partnership in the gospel. And we pray, Lord, that they would be encouraged, not just today, but for the, Lord willing, many years of ministry that they have because of your word. God, we pray not just for ourselves and for churches, but God, your word tells us and instructs us that we ought to pray for different governmental and and different authorities that are over us. So, Lord, we do that from time to time here at South Canyon Baptist Church. And, Lord, we pray this morning, for the leaders of our armed forces. God, we pray that you would give them wisdom, especially given all the seeming things that are transitioning and beginning to occur. Father, we pray that you would give those leaders of those military branches wisdom to do what is right, to do what is good, to do what will protect the American people. And God, we also pray that they would make decisions about what would protect the members of our armed forces. God, we pray that you would bless the member, the members of our armed forces and their leaders. God, we pray that as they hold the sword of justice in many ways, we pray that they would exercise that, knowing that the authority that they're given to exercise justice in those different ways does not come from themselves. But God, their authority for justice comes from the one who has exercised all justice upon his son. God, we pray that they would make decisions that are righteous and good, not just for the people of the United States, but for the people even that they're having to protect us from. God, we pray that you might work even in our armed forces and amongst the leadership a great salvation for those people who do not know you. God, we're thankful for the various chaplains that make up the chaplaincies in those various armed forces. We pray, Lord, that they would be steadfast to the gospel and to the Bible and that that's what they would declare. And God, we pray that through their ministry, we might see men and women and soldiers coming to Christ. God, we pray that you would bless the leadership of our armed forces and that you would bless all of the members of our armed forces for their sacrifice. And God, we pray that they would do all of the work that is set before them diligently and righteously. God, we pray not just for uh, people within our country, but for those in different countries. And this morning, Father, our minds turn to the country of Yemen. God, there is so much tragedy, so much strife, so much war-torn tragedy that has come in that country. So, Father, we pray for the people of Yemen. We pray for the refugees that come out of the country of Yemen. We pray, God, that there would be countries like the U.S. that would help the refugees that are fleeing from such an awful and oppressive government. God, we pray that there might be peace in the country of Yemen. But God, more than that, more than earthly peace, we pray that Christ might be not just realized, but be trusted in, in faith in the country of Yemen. Father, there seems like there are so many obstacles to getting the gospel to that country. But, God, we know that with you all things are possible. So, God, we pray for revival for the country of Yemen, that there would be locals and natives of Yemen that come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior so that your name may be lifted high. Father, we pray for ourselves, that we would support, that we would send to the country of Yemen so that people might know Jesus. God, we pray that if, even if it's some of us in here this morning, Lord, that we may be so encaptured by the gospel and by Jesus and by who you are, God, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, we might go to even one of the most war-torn and difficult countries in all the world. God, would you do that for the sake of your name and for the sake of the nation of Yemen? God, as we turn now back to ourselves, we pray this morning that from your word, we might behold our God, that we might behold our King, that we might behold Jesus. God, we pray that as we hear from Pastor Josh this morning, that you might work in us more faithfulness to Christ, more conformity to Christ. God, we pray that for those people here that may not know you as their Lord and Savior, we pray, God, that you would open their eyes through Josh's words this morning. And Father, we pray for Josh This morning, as he comes to preach, we ask that you would fill him with your Holy Spirit, that you would fill him with boldness and authority to speak what is true and what is right in your scriptures. And Father, we pray that he would help us to see Christ this morning. God, be with him, be with us, and let your word not return void as you have promised in scripture. God, we ask this because you are sovereign, because you are loving to us. We desire to hear from you this morning. We ask all of this, In Jesus' name, amen.
1: I invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to the book of Isaiah, chapter 6. Isaiah, chapter 6, and as you are turning there, I do bring greetings to you from your brothers and sisters across town at Calvary Baptist, a church that I have been so blessed to serve for the last seven years and Just uh, look forward to what the Lord continues to do in our midst. He has certainly blessed us beyond, uh, I think, what we are probably capable of appreciating. But uh, your brothers and sisters across town do send you greetings and uh, are glad to be able to hear from another brother this morning, and so I trust that uh, they are in good hands. But I want to thank Pastor Tanner and Pastor Joel this morning for the opportunity to come for your elders, uh, just the the opportunity to come and minister the the Word uh, to you and with you this morning. Aside from Scripture itself, my obsession with seeking to truly understand the holiness of God uh, has come primarily, I I would say, from the reading of R.C. Sproul and specifically his book, the holiness of God. He has stirred my affections in that reading for God's holiness, perhaps more than any other human being, though there are several faithful brothers who have thought deeply on what I would argue is the central reality of the universe. Thomas Watson reminds us it is idolatry not only to worship a false god, but the true god in a false manner. Jesus told the woman at the well in John 4 that the time is coming when the true worshipers will worship God in spirit and in truth. And I would argue this morning if we would seek to worship God in spirit and in truth, then we must see how He has revealed Himself. And I can think of no no other passage that, um, that points us to the absolute holiness of God more than Isaiah 6. So read with me in Isaiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. The Scripture says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two He covered His face, with two He covered His feet, With two he flew, and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. May the Lord bless the reading of his word this morning. You know, in the Old Testament, the prophet was a lonely man. The record of the history of the prophets in ancient Israel reads sort of like a book of martyrs. Their history sounds like the casualty report from the 3rd Division in World War II, and their life expectancy was close to that of a Marine lieutenant in combat in Vietnam. R.C. Sprawl notes in his book, the prophet's curse was solitude, his home was often a cave, the desert was his traditional meeting place with God, nakedness was sometimes his wardrobe, a wooden stock, his necktie, his songs were composed of tears. Such was a man. Such a man was Isaiah ben Amoz. In the long line of Old Testament prophets, Isaiah is quite unusual to us. Most of the prophets were of rather humble origins, peasants, shepherds, farmers. Isaiah was actually of the nobility itself. He was a recognized statesman, having access to the royal court of his day. He rubbed elbows with the princes and the kings, and God used him to speak truth to several kings of Judah, including Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Now, prophets in the Old Testament did not apply for their jobs. They had to be selected. And uh, this call was from the the sovereign God of the universe. And once the call was issued, it could not be refused. You might remember a man named Jeremiah. His book comes right after Isaiah's in the Old Testament. Uh, Jeremiah tried to pull that stunt on God, tried to refuse his call. You might remember Jeremiah trying to refuse the call, and then he was abruptly reminded that it was God who had called him and had sanctified him and consecrated him from his mother's womb. Then, after serving a term in office, Jeremiah sought to resign. God promptly refused his resignation because the job of a prophet was for life. There was no refusing, no resigning no retirement. The call of Isaiah is perhaps the most dramatic we're given in Scripture. We're told it came in the year that King Uzziah died. King Uzziah was the king of Israel in the 8th century B.C. He died in the 8th century, and the reign of King Uzziah was important in the history of Israel. He was one of the better kings who ruled over Judah He was no David, to be sure, but he also wasn't noted for his corruption like men like Ahab were. Uzziah ascended to the throne when he was 16 years old, and he reigned in Jerusalem for 52 years. Think about that. Fifty-two years. In the past 52 years, the United States of America has witnessed the administrations of Nixon, Ford, Carter, Reagan, Bush, Clinton, Bush, Obama, Trump, and Biden. But many people in Jerusalem in the 8th century B.C. lived their entire lives under the authority, under the sovereignty of one king, this one man named Uzziah. I was thinking just the other day about the reign of Queen Elizabeth II in England. Elizabeth is the longest-lived and longest-reigning British monarch, She's the longest-serving female head of state in history, the oldest-living and longest-reigning current monarch, and the oldest and longest-living incumbent head of state. It's interesting enough, she's been Queen of England for my entire life. But what really struck me the other day was I thought about my dad turning 70 later this year. And what is absolutely astonishing to me is that Elizabeth has been sitting on the the throne of the, the Kingdom of England for longer than my dad has been alive. She was the Queen of England when my dad was born in 1952. That is just absolutely incredible. In 2017, she became the only British monarch to celebrate a Sapphire Jubilee marking 65 years on the throne. She's now marked 70 years on the throne as of one week ago today. So she's now also the only British monarch to celebrate a platinum jubilee as well. Are you enjoying your British history lesson as I geek out over the reign of their monarchs? Supposedly, we Americans stopped caring about all of that in 1776. So let's get back to King Uzziah. The Bible tells us in 2 Chronicles 26 and verse 4 that Uzziah began his reign in godliness. He sought after God and God blessed him. He was victorious in battle over the Philistines and many other nations. He built towers in Jerusalem and strengthened the city walls. He restored Judah's military might almost to the levels it had been at under King David. He dug massive cisterns in the desert and stimulated tremendous expansion in the nation's agriculture, which in an agrarian society is a pretty big deal. For most of his reign, Uzziah was noted as a great and godly and holy king. But the story of Uzziah ends on a sad note. The years of his life remind us of a tragic Shakespearean hero. His reign was marred by his pride after he had acquired great wealth and power. In fact, he tried to play God by boldly entering the temple and arrogantly claiming for himself the rights that God had delegated to the priests and the priests alone. When the priests tried to stop him, he became angry and indignant with them, and he began throwing himself a tantrum, screaming at the priests. And as he was in the middle of this tantrum, leprosy broke out on his forehead. The Bible says, And King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death, and being a leper, lived in a separate house, for he was excluded from the house of the Lord. When Uzziah died, in spite of the shame of his latter years, it was time for a national mourning in Israel. This man had been king. He had been on the throne for 52 years. Isaiah went to the temple. Presumably looking for consolation in a time of grief. But Isaiah got more than he bargained for. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Folks, listen to me. If you ever come face to face with the living God, you are guaranteed to be getting way more than you ever bargained for. Way more than you ever asked for. And ladies and gentlemen, if we would ever get a glimpse of the fearful mystery of the holiness of God, we need to see what Isaiah saw. And this text lays out several things that will be true if we're ever granted to see what Isaiah saw. The first thing we must do is acknowledge God's position. Notice there in verse 1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord." This is a traumatic time in the nation of Israel. It was a traumatic time in the life of Isaiah. The king was dead. But when Isaiah entered the temple, he caught a glimpse of another king, the ultimate king, the true king, the sovereign king, the one who sat forever on the throne of Judah he saw the Lord. Uzziah had been there for 52 years, but that was nothing but the twinkling of an eye in the amount of time that the Lord God Almighty had set on the throne in Judah and in Jerusalem. He saw the Lord. Isaiah is telling us in no uncertain terms that God is sovereign. He tells us that He is in the position of sovereignty. Again, sprawl helps us here because I want you to notice how the word Lord is printed there in your Bible in Isaiah 6 and verse 1. You notice it begins with a capital letter, and then it's followed by lowercase letters after that. That stands in contrast to the word Lord that occurs later on in this very same passage and frequently throughout Scripture. Sometimes the word Lord appears in all capital letters. We call it small caps because, um, because there, there, there's a reason there. That, that's not an error in printing. And it's not an inconsistency on the part of the translator. Most English translations uh, follow that device, and and the reason is that the difference uh, is in the original language. The difference in the original language is there's two different Hebrew words that are being used. And I'm really not trying to geek out on you on Hebrew this morning. I normally would not do that, but in your notes you notice there's two different Hebrew words that are listed there and I want you to just see the difference between those two. When the word Lord appears in lowercase letters with a capital L at the beginning, the translator is indicating to us that the word Adonai is found in the Hebrew Bible. Adonai means sovereign one. It is not the name of God. Often I see people list the names of God. I hear different things about God's names and all the different things that it means. You just need to know Adonai is not a name for God. It is a title for God. In fact, it is the supreme title that is given to God in the Old Testament. When Lord appears in all capital letters, It it indicates that the word Yahweh is used in the Hebrew Bible. So here in this text, in just the space of four verses, you have the English word Lord appear two times, but there are two separate Hebrew words behind it. One is Adonai. That's what we see here in verse 1. The next one will be Lord as in Yahweh. Yahweh is the sacred name of God, the name by which God revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush. This is the unspeakable name the ineffable name, the holy name that is guarded from profanity in the nation of Israel. In fact, the scribes took this name so seriously that as they were copying and transcribing Scripture, they would come to the name Yahweh. In the Hebrew, it's the letters Y-H-W-H. They would come to that that word, they would put down their pen, they would stand up, they would go and take off their clothing, take a bath, put on fresh clothing, come back, and write that word, and continue copying and scribing that text until they come to that word again, at which point they would get up, put the pen down, go over, take a bath, put fresh clothes on, and come back and write the word and continue translating That would happen even if the word appeared two words down the line, three lines down the line, whatever it was, every single time they came to that word. That's how holy the name of God was to the scribes in Israel. We see examples of this contrast in words in several places in the Psalms. Normally, Yahweh appears only with the use of its four consonants, and so it's It's referred to as the sacred tetragrammaton, the unspeakable four letters. We see this in the Psalms, Psalm 8 and verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. What the writer is saying there is, O Yahweh, our Adonai, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. Or in English, we could render it, O God, our sovereign one, how majestic is your name in all the earth. We see it in Psalm 110 and verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord. Have you ever scratched your head about this verse? What does this mean? The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Well, right here the psalmist is saying, God said to my sovereign, sit at my right hand. God the Father said to God the Son, Jesus Christ, who is the sovereign over all creation, sit at my right hand. Lord is the name of God. Lord is His title. We speak of President Joe Biden. Joe is His name. President is His title. If the highest office in our land is the office of President, so the highest office in the land of Israel was the office of Sovereign. The title Adonai was reserved for God and God alone. It was the title that was given to Jesus, actually, in the New Testament when, when Christ is referred to as the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the New Testament equivalent of the Old Testament Adonai. Jesus is invested with that title. Jesus is called the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, gaining a title that previously had been reserved for God the Father, the supreme sovereign of heaven and earth. That alone tells you something about who Jesus is. And Stephen Lawson gives us a good reminder. Please note, he says, you do not make Christ Lord. You're not qualified. We must recognize His Lordship and submit to His Lordship, but we do not make Him Lord. see, Jesus is Lord whether you voted for Him or not. Isaiah saw God, and he recognized Him as the sovereign because not only is He sovereign, but He's also in the position of supremacy. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. When was the last time you saw someone sitting on a throne? Didn't it convey a little bit of, of pomp and circumstance? Didn't, didn't it convey a, a, a feeling of authority to you that, that this person must be… Spe- I mean, they're sitting on the throne. I'm not on the throne so I'm not the boss. That guy must be the boss. He's on the throne. Well, Jesus is revealed to us. God is revealed to us here. Isaiah says, I I looked up and I I saw uh, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, and that means that He is in the position of supremacy. God is supreme over all things. Augustine said, he who denies the existence of God has some reason for wishing that God did not exist you think about that for a minute. How many people in our society, how many people in our world absolutely despise the concept that God is in control? First of all, that God created everything, that God rules everything, that not one single thing happens, not one hair falls from your head, that God is not sovereign over all of it. And there are people on this earth who absolutely cannot stomach that fact. And I would agree with Augustine, the reason for that is because they have good reason for wishing and hoping that God did not exist. He's in the position of superiority. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. When things are high and lifted up, it communicates they're in a position of honor and primacy, We place our pulpits on a raised platform. Why? Because we are trying to communicate in doing that that the Word of God itself takes precedence and rules over all of our lives. What this says, we believe and we obey. That's what's being communicated by having a stage and a platform. It's not just so you can sit up here and, and look at Joel and Tanner's beautiful faces. As much as their wives may be into that, It's not so we can see them, but it's primarily so that we we are, are making a conscious effort in our mind to make sure that we understand that the Word of God is supreme above all things. Jesus is in the position of superiority. He is high and lifted up. and He's also in the position of splendor. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. I know we got over it in 1776, but just to go back for just a second, if if any of you were alive when Queen Elizabeth was coronated in 1953, you may have remembered seeing that coronation appear on television. And, And if you ever go back and watch video footage of that, You know when she came into Westminster Abbey there for her coronation, there was a train on her robe, on her gown, that that was just beyond belief. Many different people. Princess Diana had an absolutely massive train on her bridal gown when she married Prince Charles. The, the, The train of the robe, the train of the gown, the longer the train was the more majestic and the more power the king or the monarch was supposed to have. It it connotes authority and power. And that's why with the more powerful the monarch, the longer the train becomes. Well, what does Isaiah say of the Lord that he saw in the temple? He said, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe wasn't just long, it wasn't just majestic, it filled the entire temple. Isaiah is communicating to us that there is no one higher than God. There is no one more splendorous than God. There is no one more powerful than God. There is no one in any position above God. That's what it means when he tells us that the train of his robe filled the temple. Do you remember Moses' request when he ascended the mountain of God? He'd been an eyewitness to astonishing miracles. He'd heard God speaking to him out of a burning bush He'd seen the plagues in Egypt. He'd tasted the manna from heaven. He'd gazed upon the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. He'd witnessed the chariots of Pharaoh buried by the waves of the Red Sea. But he wasn't satisfied. He longed for more. He craved the ultimate spiritual experience. He made his request. Let me see your face. Oh God, let me see your glory. He said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. Proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand till I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Request denied. When God told Moses he could see his back, the literal translation is hindquarters. God let Moses see his hindquarters, and that's it. And when Moses came off the mountain, his face shone so bright that people begged him to put a veil over his face. They couldn't even stand to be in the presence of someone who had been in the presence of God Almighty. They were terrified. Moses had come so close to God that he was reflecting God's glory, and that was just the reflection from the back of God. It wasn't even the reflection of the glory of His his face. If people are rightly terrified by the reflected glory of the back of God, how can anyone stand to gaze directly into His face? And yet, this is the eternal hope of every Christian, is it not? One day, we will not be restricted to seeing a reflected glance at God. We will see Him in His resplendent glory, face to face as a man looks at his friend. We will see what was denied to Moses. We will bask in the radiant glory of His divine countenance. It was the hope instilled in the most famous and beloved benediction in Israel in Numbers chapter 6. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. It was the hope of every Jew, and it is the promise to every Christian. John tells us in 1 John 3 and verse 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we will know that when He appears, that we will be like Him, because we will see Him. As he is. This is the promise of God. We will see him as he is. This is what theologians for centuries have referred to as the beatific vision. We will see God as he is. We must acknowledge God's position. And once we've done that, it's time to adjust to God's presence. Notice verse 2. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. We're introduced here in verse 2 to some magnificent creatures. The the seraphim are rather unique in Scripture, are they not? Do you know of any any other creature that has six wings that covers their eyes and their feet and flies and i mean this is these are some magnificent creatures it's fascinating to me that the creator god as he created he knew exactly what the environment would be that all of those creatures would inhabit and so for instance he knew that creatures who were going to walk around on land or slither or or crawl or whatever that those creatures would need in order to survive they would need to be able to breathe oxygen And so what did He do? He created us with lungs. He gave us lungs that can extract oxygen oxygen out of the air, and and that's exactly how He created us. But He also created other creatures. We call them fish. Some of us like to eat them every once in a while. And those things, God knew their environment was going to be in the water. Well, guess what happens to a land animal or a human being who walks around on land, who finds himself underwater for an extended period of time without a $2 billion U.S. Navy submarine keeping them alive. You die. Above the water, your lungs allow you to live. Below the water, your lungs allow you to die very, very quickly. And so God, knowing this, knowing that He created fish to exist in an environment underwater, so well, I'm not going to give them lungs, I'm going to give them gills. They're still extracting oxygen, it's just a different process. You get the point. Every creature was created with an eye to the environment they would inhabit. Well, when it came to seraphim, God knew very well the environment they would inhabit. And we see here He created them accordingly. Seraphim are not sinful human beings with impure hearts. They are angelic beings. We go one further than that. They are angelic beings who never followed Lucifer out of heaven, who never have sinned one day in their life, and yet they are still creatures. And even though since their creation they have always been in the presence of God, it is still necessary For them to shield their eyes from a direct gaze upon the face of God Himself. They are fearfully and wonderfully made, equipped by their Creator with a special set of wings to cover their face in the majesty of His presence. The seraphim have a second set of wings which are used to cover their feet. These wings aren't some sort of angelic shoes, they're used for a different purpose. This ought to remind us of the experience of Moses before the burning bush in Exodus 3. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Isn't that interesting? Have you ever noticed that before? Our God is what? A consuming fire, and yet the angel of the Lord stood before Moses in the burning bush, and it was not consumed. Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses! And he said, here I am. He said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. God commanded Moses to take off his shoes because Moses was standing on holy ground. The ground was made holy, by the very presence of God. The act of removing his shoes was a way for Moses to recognize he was a creature in the presence of his creator. Human feet, sometimes referred to as feet of clay, symbolize our creaturely origin. It is our feet that link us to this earth the seraphim are not of the earth. They do not possess feet of clay. They are angelic beings. Nevertheless, they remain creatures, and as such, they must adjust themselves to the presence of their Creator. And having adjusted themselves to God's presence, notice what they do. They announce God's perfection. Verse 3, One called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth, is full of His glory." The song of the seraphim is the triple repetition of the word holy. The significance of the repetition of that word represents a particular literary device found in Hebrew poetry, where repetition is a form of emphasis. When we want to emphasize something in English, we have several different literary devices to allow us to do that. We can italicize the words. We can put them in bold face. We can underline them. We can use exclamation points. We can put them in quote marks. We we have all sorts of different ways of emphasizing a particular idea and drawing the reader's attention and saying, this is the big idea. This is what's important. This is what you need to see. The Old Testament Jew also had several devices to indicate importance, and one of them was the use of repetition. Allow me to quote Sproul again for just a moment. He said, a humorous use of the repetition device may be seen in Genesis 14. The story of the battle of the kings in the Valley of Siddam mentions men who fell in the great tar pits of the region. Some translators call them asphalt pits or bitumen pits or simply great pits. Why the confusion in translation? Exactly what kind of pits were they? The Hebrew is unclear. The original text gives the Hebrew word for pit, and then it just simply repeats it. The story speaks literally of pit pits. The Jew was saying that there are pits, and then there are pits. Some pits are pittier than other pits. These pits, the pit pits, are the pittiest pits of all. It's one thing to fall into a pit. But if you fall into a pit pit, you are in deep, deep trouble. You know, on a handful of occasions, the Bible repeats something to the third degree. To mention something three times in succession is to elevate it to the highest level of importance. Only once in Scripture is an attribute of God elevated to the third degree. The Bible tells us here in Isaiah 6 that God is holy, holy, holy holy. Notice, He is not merely holy, and He's not just holy, holy. He is holy, holy, holy. The Bible never says that God is love, love, love. It doesn't ascribe to Him mercy, 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 or wrath, 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 or justice, justice, justice. But it does say that He is holy, holy, holy and that the whole earth is full of His glory. And what's the proper response to all this? It is to appreciate God's power. Notice verse 4, and the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of Him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. There are those who would recoil in horror At the thought of a sermon that has lasted the better part of an hour, not to say a sermon on the holiness of God that has lasted that long, they would find it in a word, boring. It's difficult for many people to find worship a moving experience. But when God showed up in the temple, the foundations of the thresholds were moved. If you've been by Calvary Baptist Church lately, out on Highway 16, you know we've been building a new gymnasium for quite some time. We're nearing completion on it. Hopefully, later this spring, that thing will be ready to use. But I can tell you, as somebody who has sat on the teams and is the lead pastor, sort of leading that whole ministry, there's one thing that would terrify me more than anything else about that one building, is if the foundations of the thresholds began to move. No, no, no. We want concrete. We want rebar. We want extra strong concrete. We do not want foundations moving. But Isaiah is in the temple. He sees the Lord. He sees him seated on a throne, high and lifted up. The, 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 the train of his robe has filled the temple. And what's the response? Even the building begins to shake. Sprawl put it like this, the inert matter of doorposts, the inanimate objects of thresholds, the wood and metal that could neither hear nor speak had the good sense to be moved in the presence of God. I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. All of creation is groaning. All creation is looking forward to the consummation of all things. When the King of kings and Lord of lords comes back to this earth and sets all things right, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the famous German pastor, theologian, and anti-Nazi dissident, living in the midst of the horror that was brought about by Hitler and his henchmen, living and trying to honor God, trying to pastor a church, trying to faithfully exegete God's Word. We don't have to agree with everything Bonhoeffer ever said, but this one takes the cake. He said, may God in His mercy lead us through these times, but above all. May He lead us to Himself. That's what you and I need this morning. We may not be looking down the barrels of the Gestapo. We may not be facing the horrors of Mussolini and Stalin's gulags and all the other horrific events that took place in the 20th century, not to mention the centuries that came before. We have our own difficulties. We have our own struggles in our own time. We could rightfully repeat Bonhoeffer and say may God in his mercy lead us through these times. But honestly, I can give a rip about COVID. Above all, may he lead us to himself. I am just as sick as anybody else of getting on airplanes and hearing 27,000 times before we even push back from the gate, put on your mask, you got to cover your mouth and cover your nose, and there's federal laws, and we could throw you in prison for the rest of your life. I know it's a little bit of hyperbole, but come on, folks. We're all sick of it. We're all over it. It goes on and on and on. It gets tiring. It's frustrating. I've had enough, and I whine and grumble and complain about it just like the rest of us. Really? in light of everything, in light of the fact that we have a God who not only created us, but after we sinned, has redeemed us and drawn us back to Himself and bought us with a price? And we spend hours every day on Facebook caring what everybody else in the world thinks about whatever else is going on? When was the last time we spent that much time in Scripture? In a year, much less a day. All of us have views and opinions and positions on the face coverings and the government mandates and the vaccines and all of the stuff. And those are important things to think about in their place and in their time. All of those things are important to varying degrees, but none of them rise to the level of our God giving us a glimpse of Himself. Maybe, just maybe, if we got off Facebook and quit whining about everything else going on in the world, and caring what everybody else thinks about it, and got our nose in the Word of God, we just might, like Isaiah, leave church on a Sunday morning, and be able to walk out, and say, I walked into the temple after that president, whoever he was, died, and there was nobody sovereign in the land, but I got a glimpse of the Lord, and He was seated on a throne, and He was high and lifted up, And the train of His robe filled the temple. It filled the sanctuary with His glory. And I got a glimpse of the one true living God. And I don't care and I don't give a rip about all the nonsense going on in social media anymore because I have gotten a glimpse of the Lord. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. May He lead us to Himself. Tim Keller reminds us the gospel shows us a God far more holy than a legalist can bear and yet more merciful than a humanist can conceive. When Isaiah comes face to face with the holiness of God, he says, woe is me. Woe is me. I am undone. We could spend another hour on that phrase alone. I will spare you this morning, but... Woe is me, I I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Sounds like doom and gloom. But folks, there is hope. Because he says, mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You see, there is deliverance for the child of God who would get serious about the holiness of God. We need to see what Isaiah saw, and if we're ever granted to see it, it'll explain why we need to sense what Isaiah sensed. We need to suffer what Isaiah suffered, and why each and every one of us needs to say what Isaiah said. Here am I, Lord. Send me. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, we thank you for your word, We thank you for the opportunity to come together today. Father, just to seek in the reading of your word, in the singing of songs to lift your name high. God, seeking to just get a glimpse of your glory. Pray that you would radically just transform each and every one of our lives this morning. Father, give us a burning desire and hunger to know you better, to know you more to repeat what John did in 1 John 3. Father, to have the desire to see you as you are. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.